you know, it's, it's, it's such a huge monumental task, you know, convert the entire country. I mean, that's, that's insane. That's ridiculous. But you chip away at it, you, you know, bit by bit. It's all you can do. Uh, increment by increment, bit by bit. Um, and you work towards progress. And that's exactly what she did. With me is Bruce Goldfarb, a former EMT and paramedic and an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared on All Things Considered, The Washington Post, USA Today, American Health, Baltimore Magazine, and many other print and online publications. Since 2012, he's been executive assistant to the chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland. He is a public information officer for the OCME and is a curator of the Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. He's here today to talk about his new book, 18 Tiny Deaths, The Untold Story of Francis Glesner Lee and the Invention of Modern Forensics. Bruce, welcome to Science for the People. Hi, Rochelle. Very nice to talk with you. So most people probably haven't heard of Francis Glesner Lee, but probably many of our listeners who are by their nature wonderful nerds for whom this is right up their alley, um, many of them will have heard of the nutshell studies of unexplained death. But before we dig into Lee and her contributions to modern forensics in the US and the kind of why the nutshell studies actually came into existence. We should probably not bury the lead too badly. So let's start with a really quick overview of what the nutshell studies of unexplained death are before we dig into how they came to be. Well, the nutshell studies of unexplained death are a collection of 18 dioramas built on a scale of one inch to one foot um, that depict death scenes uh, which are used for training police officers in a week-long homicide seminar. And they're basically just a teaching tool, a three-dimensional object to practice the skills of observation. Can you give us a little bit of sense of the detail in them? Because I think some people, when they hear the word diorama, they might think of like something they made in grade school in a shoebox. <laughs> Yeah, these are a little more sophisticated than that. They're, they're, I, I guess, superficially look like dollhouses. Uh, they're rooms. Uh, there's a couple of them that are multiple rooms or exteriors. Um, and, and they are, um, just about as close as you can get to a real crime scene, to a real death scene. They, um, have, uh, furniture is handmade, uh, with drawers that open and close. There are, uh, doors and, um, um, all the clothing is handmade. Uh, there's a tiny, um, there are hand rolled cigarettes and an overflowing ashtray. Each one of these dioramas cost to build, uh, about as much as it costs to build a real house. So she's, she, uh, a fortune was spent on creating them. So uh, I first learned of the nutshell studies in, I, I want to say about my early twenties when my grandmother, who herself used to make the most amazingly denatured miniatures, um, gave me a coffee table book on them, uh, at this time. And I think it was because when I was a teenager, um, she used to have coffee table books of other really famous dollhouses that I used to spend hours and hours flipping through when I went to her house. And so, uh, in my twenties, when I got my first apartment, and moved into my first home that that was just me, she gave me this as my first coffee table book. And I was fascinated by it. I had never heard of them before. And I don't even think I actually read the book for a couple of months. I just loved endlessly flipping through the pages and looking at all of the pictures. These um, These miniatures are so amazingly detailed and also kind of like very macabre as one would probably imagine given that they're studies of death i suppose they may be a bit macabre um they uh corinne botts's book that you're talking about called the nutshell studies of unexplained death and she's a wonderful photographer graduate of the maryland institute college of art and yeah that book is i have it myself it's just chock full of just uh beautiful beautiful uh pictures um that that she has done and um uh that's that's uh, it's been a while but uh, that's a tremendous book yeah 
It's such a, a fantastic book. And that was my first introduction to them. I had never heard of them before that. And honestly, I hadn't seen much about them since, um, since getting that book. Um, so I'm curious to see how, or to hear how you first came across the nutshell studies. Well, I first heard about them. Um, I, I wrote about them in 1992 when I was doing journalism full time. And I wrote about them for a, the weekly newspaper of the American Medical Association called American Medical News. And, um, it was, you know, just one of those one off stories that they paid very well for. And, um, it kind of uh, kept recurring. I, I kept coming back to it. I visited the medical examiner's office many times to look at them again, and people would want me to arrange visits and those sorts of things. So uh, I was mesmerized from the get-go as, as a collection of art. I was very in- interested uh, in the, the craft that they represented and the skill uh, as in model making. They're just amazing. So what made you want to write this book in particular, which is definitely not just about the nutshell studies. It's really more about Francis Glesner Lee and that era of forensics and sort of how modern forensics came to the United States. Right. Well, because uh, through my job and um, I was fortunate enough to uh, get employed as the 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 chief's assistant and public information officer and um, the the guy who was the keeper of the secrets of the dioramas Jerry D um, asked me to you know sort of look after the nutshells and change the light bulbs and those sorts of things and I became the person that people would go to if a, a photographer wanted to take some pictures or somebody who wanted to do a story or that sort of thing uh, they'd be directed to me and I was really the only one who would be willing to accommodate visitors and um, you know these people would ask first of all I, I you know, she's, she's an amazing person, Francis Glesner Lee, and I was always interested. So, you know, I consider myself, you know, a big fan. And people would ask these questions that were fairly obvious. Uh, you know, how did she get involved in forensic science? And why did she choose? What are these dioramas based on? And what was she like as a person? And, you know, all these things. And I, I didn't know the answer. And it was really pretty obvious. And in reading, um, what was available online, there was a lot of misconceptions, there were myths, there were things that were um, this persistent story that she was forbidden to go to college, which is not true, that her parents forbid her to go to college, uh, and, and those sorts of things. And it was just very, um, it was frustrating. Um, and in talking with uh, uh, William Tyre, who is the uh, curator of the Glesner House which is now a museum in Chicago. And we sort of bemoaned the, you know, the fact that, you know, it's, it's a shame that, you know, um, that there is no, there's no biography. Her story's not been told. And, um, you know, it became obvious that there was a need to, to have it told. And so I was sort of designated as her biographer and, and it, it went from there. So can you tell us a little bit about the era she she grew up in and what kind of background she came from? So give us a, a sense of time and place um, for people who don't even know the era that the nutshell studies come from. Well, what interested me about Frances Glesner Lee was that her lifespan basically was bookended from the advent of fingerprints, fingerprinting, to the advent of DNA. She was born in 1878, uh, which was Gilded Age, Chicago. Her, she came from a very wealthy family. Her dad owned a piece of International Harvester, uh, and they were quite affluent, uh, one of the wealthiest families in Chicago. And uh, she was homeschooled, she and her brother, um, by the finest educators that money could, could, uh, could buy in Chicago and trained in the classics and mathematics and art and music and um, uh, all these things. And she had an extraordinary upbringing and um, uh, was married young uh, at age uh, 19, 20 years old, was married for a few years before she was divorced. They had three children, Um, but she had a rather, um, you know, she was raised in the social graces uh, the, she would, there was a cultured family steeped in art and, and the music, big uh, supporters of the Chicago Symphony, and, and just not a person 
who would be likely to become a trailblazer in the field of forensic science. One would have expected her to become perhaps a lady of Chicago society, not necessarily a leader in forensic science. Uh, for sure, looking would, at her that, background and her upbringing, yeah. that's would have, I'm sure, was the expectation of the people around her as well. Sure. Uh, that was certainly her trajectory. She married well, and uh, I, I don't think anybody would have blamed her. She spent the rest of her life going to you know lectures in the decorative arts and functions and teas and cocktail receptions and those sorts of things um, as people of wealth did and s still do but uh, her her life took a very different turn can you talk a little bit about the state of legal medicine in the US when Lee was a young adult I'm thinking sort of the age of 20 when she would have started to become a bit interested in uh, forensics since the days that this country was established as a colony, we were in the coroner system, which dates from the Middle Ages. The, the coroner, the constable, the justice of the peace, these are all officials from uh, medieval England. And uh, the coroner system is very different. Uh, the coroner had the responsibility of uh, investigating deaths that were sudden or unexpected. And um, he, they had a combination of uh, medical, judicial, and, and law enforcement responsibilities. Uh, and what they would do is to hold a coroner's inquest. Um, and to get a, it's, it's a lot like a grand jury, get a group of uh, 10 or 12 adults together. Uh, they were required to view the body and uh, they would hear from witnesses and then they voted. Who thinks it's uh, an accident? Who thinks it's uh, an act of God? It's sort of uh, crowdsourcing, death investigation. And so the medical examiner system is a medical model where a physician is in charge uh, with that training and expertise to diagnose, cause, manner of death. And the first medical examiner system in the United States uh, was established in 1877 in Boston, Massachusetts. And by the time Francis Glesner Lee got involved in the 1920s, uh, their medical examiners existed in three places. They were in Boston, New York City, and in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, the rest of the country was still on the coroner system, which was still um, tend had a tendency towards uh, corruption, uh, bribery, kickbacks, uh, indifference, incompetence, and it was really uh, less than satisfactory in, in, in many cases. What about the state of forensics outside the U.S.? Uh, what was the state of legal medicine internationally, for example, in Europe? Well, I, I mean, medicine was quite advanced, but much of the world, uh, including the U.K., uh, uses there are variations of coroner, um, but there's still much of the world is, is still on the coroner system. Um, although they rely on forensic pathologists to provide the, uh, the cause of death information to them. So how did Lee get interested in forensics in the first place at this time? Uh, I think broadly known as legal medicine. What, what got her into this topic? She was introduced to what was then called legal medicine, now called forensic medicine, by a, a friend, a family friend, um, a fellow uh, who went to Harvard University with her brother, a doctor by the name of George Burgess McGrath. And McGrath was trained as a pathologist and then in 1907 was appointed the medical examiner for uh, Suffolk County, which included most of Boston. And so uh, McGrath went to Europe to train uh, in the medical centers in uh, Europe at the time and he spent time in Edinburgh and London and Paris and Vienna uh, and to learn legal medicine and then came back to the United States and incorporated that into his work as medical examiner and also to the lectures that he provided to medical students at Harvard Medical School. Uh, and he, throughout New England, he gained this reputation as a, um, a, a crime doctor, and, and he was involved in uh, many really high-profile cases, such as the 1919 molasses disaster that many of your listeners are probably familiar with, uh, and the Sacco and Vanzetti case and those sorts of things. So um, he, he had quite a reputation as a uh, forensic uh, you know, investigator, but he was. He was America's first forensic pathologist. And so he introduced Francis 
um, to uh, this emerging field and explain to her, just as we've been having this conversation about the coroner system, medical examiners, and the deficiencies and, and all that. And she really took up that mission as her life's work for the rest of her life and um, uh, ended up spending a, a good deal of her fortune to make sure that McGrath's ideas of forensic medicine took root and flourished in the United States. The first chapter of her pursuing this as a as a cause, which she really did take up um, in her life, really is bound up in her friendship with McGrath and his experiences as a medical examiner. Um, it, it felt like reading through your book that without him um, and without his expertise and his experiences and all of his case write-ups that he had, that it feels like um, Francis Glesner Lee may never have taken this up in the same way that she did. That's probably true. They spent time together in 1929. They were both uh, received some medical care in Boston and uh, spent time together recuperating. And it can, can pretty much narrow it down to you know, almost not quite a day, but it was in the summer of 1929, uh, August, when he, you know, basically flipped a switch in her mind and got her turned on to this whole concept of uh, legal medicine. And uh, yeah, I, you know, it probably would have emerged in the United States at some point anyway. It's just a natural progression of things. But uh, a lot of its uh, growth and its existence, um, a lot of it is due to Frances Klesner Lee and, and her and her work and her efforts. McGrath was quite well known within his jurisdiction. That doesn't necessarily mean he was uh, universally liked. Uh, he was part of a, a few controversial cases. And actually, I, I recall somewhere in the book, um, you talk about how some of the people within his jurisdiction who didn't like the way he approached his work, he was framed to try and get him fired or potentially arrested. Yeah. That is true. He stepped on toes. You know, the, the coroner is a powerful position uh there's a lot of money uh, potential for for graft and and so uh, he stepped on toes uh the medical examiner and one thing i don't think that a lot of people understand is that the medical examiner the medical examiner is a doctor and they have the the same relationship with the with the decedent as any doctor does with his or her patient and so you know, when somebody dies, there's all these people, uh, funeral homes, but they're not really looking after the decedent's interest. Uh, they're, the funeral homes exist for the family. The police are looking for, if it's a foul play, they're looking for the bad guy. Um, so, you know, nobody else is really concerned strictly and only with that decedent's interest. And so he stuck very, you know, he, he was a, a, uh, uh, a prisoner to the truth, whatever it may be, whatever the science showed. And so he wouldn't play ball with prosecutors. Uh, he wouldn't say what the police, he wouldn't go along with the police when they had a theory. And so, uh, he was just his own man. And, um, sometimes that ran counter to what other people wanted, but he was dedicated to his practice and to his, his decedents. His, those are his charges. I remember uh, you talking about in the book as well, how even beyond when he was engaging with the public or the police or uh, legal people, even with Francis herself, when they were just sitting and talking as friends, he was very strict with himself about what cases he would talk about and what uh, cases he wouldn't. And he, he was very steadfast in not wanting to discuss any case that was still ongoing and still undecided within the legal system, which I'm sure is a standard that a lot of modern forensics people with their friends or spouses don't always adhere to. Um, you know, strangely, uh, that, that is, uh, still the practice at the OCME of Maryland today. Uh, there's, we don't, we don't, nothing about a, a case is discussed publicly, uh, until it's, uh, resolved. It's worked its way through the courts. Um, McGrath felt that, you know, scientific evidence belonged in the courtroom and that shouldn't be 
discussed and debated in the, the gossip columns of the papers. Uh, these are really serious matters and um, should be discussed seriously. Uh, and so, you know, yes, a lot, uh, you know, I can't answer for what uh, other places, you know, some places do or don't what they do. Uh, but there are people who still take that, um, that practice very seriously. So when did McGrath and Lee uh, start to get involved with the Department of Legal Medicine at Harvard, or perhaps should I say start to create the Department of Legal Medicine at Harvard? Well, they spent that that uh, summer together in 1929, and Frances at the time was 52 years old uh, when she learned about legal medicine and what needed to be done. She came to realize that there were three 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 things that needed to be done in order to advance the country and move away from the coroner system to the medical examiner system. Uh, one thing you needed was to increase the manpower. There needs to be uh, an army of well-trained doctors who are qualified uh, to uh, diagnose cause and manner of death. And so what she did was to, uh, uh, in 1931, she began giving money to Harvard Medical School in order to support uh, George McGrath's work at Harvard, his lectures and what he was doing with students. Uh, and then uh, a few years later, um, in 1936, she uh, donated a collection of books to establish the uh, Library of Legal Medicine, uh, which she named the George McGrath Library of Legal Medicine. And it was the largest of its kind in the world at the time. And um, in 1936-37, she donated the equivalent of $3.8 million to form an entire academic department, a whole new field of medical practice with lectures and training and a fellowship to make medical examiners and laboratory and research and teaching materials with the um, moving pictures and lantern slides and, and all these things and just the whole thing, which uh, that's what they began in uh, the late 1930s. And it was that was the first uh, program in legal medicine in the country that she established at Harvard Medical School. And this began a long and uh, sometimes tumultuous relationship with Harvard. <laughs> yes, for the rest of her life. Uh, it was quite complicated. Um, she she was very conflicted with Harvard on the one hand. You know, she, she and her family, the Glesner families, were very dedicated to Harvard. Uh, she felt great affection for it on some level. It was... Uh, her ex-husband, Blewett Lee, and um, uh, all the important, uh, her brother, um, the the architect of her home, H.H. H. Richardson, um, all the important men in her life went to Harvard. And um, that was the one place that she would have liked to have gone uh, to medical school, but Harvard didn't admit women until 1945. So, uh, you know, she did feel it was, you know, the best of the best and had that uh, prestige and that name recognition, and it was important for her to base that program at Harvard. Yeah. One of the most amazing things about Frances Glesner Lee that I definitely did not know before reading your book was she was a lady who knew how to get things done. She knew a lot about legal medicine. She did her homework there. She knew a lot, probably more than most um, most anyone else who wasn't actually training to be a medical examiner. But boy, did she really know how to play the political and lobbying game to move the, her goals forward. And she was very focused and knew what to do and knew how to present it and how to talk to people and get where she needed to go and pull strings and push buttons. And it was fascinating to read about how she pushed that cause forward in in a way that wasn't teaching classes. It, it, it was a very women of the 1930s way, which I loved. <laughs> she was a force of nature. Uh, <laughs> she, you know, she was determined. Uh, but, you know, the thing was that she, her, her whole life, you know, she had been raised with these social graces and to have a, uh, a cocktail party 
with a very heterogeneous group of various people and politicians, musicians. But that's what she was good at was getting people to do things and come together and, and to, you know, sit at a table and, and socialize. And, and she used her, these graces, um, you know, to a greater good. And she, you know, forced her way into a meetings with J. Edgar Hoover and, um, you know, got Harvard to as stodgy and stuffy as they were that she got Harvard to do her bidding. Um, but yeah, she was, she was quite a, um, quite a personality. What would the response to her and her cause have been at the time? I am sure she was not the only woman of her age or her stature pushing forward a cause, but I suspect that her particular cause of legal medicine was quite a departure from what other 50-year-old women were pushing forward at the time. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, at, 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 at its basis, you know, it, there was validity to it. You know, there was an obvious and clear need for an improvement in how deaths were investigated. Um, it was just such a humongous undertaking that it just seemed, you know, uh, just so daunting for any one people, any one person or group of people to undertake. Um, but, um, you know, she was persistent and, um, you, you know, it was, it was, um, you know, something that it, it, it was, she, that needed to be done, and uh, she was determined to spend the rest of her life working towards it. I really enjoyed also learning how much time she spent actually learning about the legal medicine side herself and thinking about how not just she could get the right people in the room, but also would put forward extensive proposals to state coordinators on how to begin the process of moving from a coroner system to a medical examiner system that were robust and well thought out in particular to that state. And I thought, what? I, I it made me want to go and read those documents uh, to see the things that she had put forward or the proposals that she had, um, because I I I never would have uh, assumed that the the fifty or sixty year old woman who created these miniature scenes of death that I was so fascinated with would also be you know setting forward detailed proposals of these kinds of natures. It was fascinating. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do the book, because when you read about Frances Klesner Lee, she's, she's so often depicted as this, uh, doddering, uh, rich old lady who made these creepy dollhouses. And that's pretty much it. But she really was, uh, she was an educator. You know, she really understood curriculum development. Uh, and, and this whole program sprang from her mind. She was not a dilettante and she was, Really regarded uh, as the uh, preeminent criminologist of her of her era, she was a voracious reader. The books that she collected for her library, she read them all. She she could read in German and and uh, uh, Latin and uh, uh, Italian, French, you name it. Uh, and she was uh, just a, a a brilliant person and a really she had a a great ability to incorporate facts. Uh, and and to devise a strategy uh, for a way forward, but um, you know I I really you know wanted to get away from this the whole nutshell studies of unexplained death as remarkable as they are are really almost an asterisk in in, in what she did with her life almost parenthetical it's amazing but what she really did is so much more than that. Uh, and that's what I tried to get through in the book. Oh, absolutely. I love that in the book, you open with the nutshell studies because that motivates people to learn more about the person who created them. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I grabbed the book was like, oh, I know these nutshell studies. I loved these. I've read a lot. You know, I thought I had read a lot about them and I had never really read that much about the woman who created them. So I was super in to read about her and so fascinated to learn about her life and her contributions and the way she pushed uh, science forward and the way she pushed education about forensic science forward. Um, mm. Definitely something that I didn't know, a history that I didn't know, which was super interesting. What also kind of fascinated me was 
that she was a woman of clearly mean. She was um, very wealthy, but she was also fully in control of her own resources as well because she was divorced and didn't remarry um, and was very much in control of where her finances went. And I assume as well that um, a woman who of her interest and her capability but also fully in control of the fortune she had in her dis- at her disposal was probably a pretty good force to be reckoned with at the time. She was very shrewd as a business person. Uh, she said that you couldn't help uh, being a, a daughter of uh, John Jacob Glesner, who was the vice president of International Harvester. You couldn't help be his daughter and that be really good at business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, she, and she was, you know, what, what struck me, one of the things that strikes me about her is that she could be so, so amazingly generous uh, and, and just really spend lavishly on, on uh, police departments and sending smoked turkeys for the Christmas and, and um, buying, uh, you know, chairs for uh, Harvard faculty and all kinds of gifts and spending and spending. But she would also, if a set of dishes was in not quite the right scale for her diorama, she would send it back to the shop and, you know, insist on her refund of a dollar and 67 cents and those sorts of things. So she kept track of every single penny uh, and she knew exactly what she was doing at, you know, at all times. She was absolutely in control. Fascinating to read for sure. Um, do you think it made a difference for her not having a perhaps a husband or an overbearing father who was perhaps had a, a stake in some of where that money was going? That's been, you know, that's been that's been one of the one of the narratives that you read online mm-hmm. was that um, Francis wasn't able to. Uh, didn't have her agency until her 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 father had had died, and there wasn't anybody to disapprove of what she did, and all these things. Um, but I, there's no evidence that anybody ever really disapproved. Mm-hmm. Um, and because um, she began doing this in 1931, her her mom uh, her mom died in what 34. Her dad died in 1936. So there's an overlap there. He was around when she was doing some of these things. I don't know how much they talked about it. Um, but, um, I don't think that she would have been dissuaded one way or another. She was, uh, uh, you know, truly an independent woman. So after McGrath retired, uh, Alan Moritz came and began to helm the teaching and professorial side of the Department of Legal Medicine. Can you talk a little bit about who he was and where he kind of came from and how he got involved? Well, uh, in the late 1930s, when they're just establishing this Department of Legal Medicine at Harvard Medical School, it became increasingly apparent that George Burgess McGrath was not well. Um, he had uh, 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 jaundice and uh, liver failure, and um, there's uh, cellulitis in both hands, and uh, he had uh, – uh, some issues with uh, alcohol and possibly some other substances, and uh, it was it was really clear that he was not going to last uh, too much longer. And there was a a search to find a successor to, for George Burgess McGrath, and um, there was a short list, and um, that led them to Alan Moritz, who was a basically third in command at the Pathology Institute of, of uh, Western uh, Case Western University uh, in Cleveland. And um, he was a young pathologist who had been doing some work in uh, vascular research and uh, was making a name for himself. And, and they approached him um, with the idea of since there was Nobody else in the country who had the qualifications and training to take over McGrath's job, um, the the next best thing was to find somebody who was extremely talented uh, and promising and then send them off like McGrath did uh, to Europe to be trained. Uh, and um, uh, they talked uh, after some back and forth. They talked uh, Alan Mortz into taking the job and uh, – uh, after spending about a year and a half, two years in Europe, um, studying at the uh, medical centers there, he uh, the, came back and, and helmed the department in 1939. 
So how did Moritz and Lee get along? Because obviously Lee started this great project with McGrath, someone she was very friendly with and had been a longtime uh, associate of hers and friend of hers. Um, how, how did she do with Moritz? She, you know, she always, she always respected his uh, qualifications at the, as a as a pathologist. There was no doubt he was very very bright, very smart, a top notch pathologist. Uh, she did warm up to him a bit socially. You know, she invited him uh, and uh, his wife and their children, the whole family, to to visit at her estate in New Hampshire, the rocks and, um, you know, showered the, the family with the gifts and those sorts of things. Um, but, you know, Moritz was, uh, you know, a, a, a pathologist first and a forensic pathologist second. Uh, and he would always seem to be more interested in himself than the field of forensic medicine. Uh, and in time, their relationship became strained. Uh, she was always making demands of him. Um, although, you know, his, he, he did uh, an awful lot for the field of, uh, forensic medicine. Um, I don't think his heart was absolutely 100% into it. He felt that he'd, he'd put in his year, a decade, um, at the, uh, uh, chairman and he did what he was asked to do. And it was time for him to think of himself and, um, you know, ultimately they, they, um, they didn't exactly have a falling out. She did had, did have some, they each had some unkind things to say about each other. Uh, and she felt that he was untrustworthy and, uh, ambitious and, uh, you know, those sorts of things. And, uh, uh Moritz, uh, you know, at one point said, yeah, well, you know, she, she has no, she has no actual qualifications. She's just basically a, you know, an old lady with, <laughs> with nothing better to do. So that's the way they, they got along. So it was a complicated relationship, much like her relationship with Harvard. I think much of what Francis Glesner Lee did was complicated. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Probably a recurring theme in her life. She was good at complicated though. And I think yeah. that's, I think that shows because there are a lot of people, even as dedicated as Lee was, who would have taken some of those complicated people or complicated situations and maybe said, you know what? It's not worth my time. But it seems okay. like she was just relentless and just even in the face sometimes of frustration and pushback. And even when plans didn't go quite right, she was just like, okay, what's next? And isn't that amazing? It's so she amazing. Never, she never got discouraged and she never, you know, just felt defeated. Uh, and anytime there was a setback, exactly, she'd say, all right, time to work up our, you know, roll up our sleeves and we'll redouble our efforts. You know, and it, amazing. And I didn't get the sense reading about her that it was ever a false cheer or a false hope. She was very clear where she had failed or something hadn't gone right and wanted to try to understand why, but she yeah. never seemed to feel like a sense of true defeat. She, she was always just like, okay, let's go on to the next strategy then, or let's exactly. talk to the next state or let's talk to the next police department. Yep. Like, yep. 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 It's a, you know, it's, it's, it's such a huge monumental task, you know, convert the entire country. I mean, it's, that's insane. That's ridiculous, but you chip away at it, you, you know, bit by bit, it's all you can do. Uh, increment by increment, bit by bit. Um, and you work towards progress and that's exactly what she did. So I want to talk about when she first got involved with training police, because we've talked a lot about training doctors and training medical examiners. Right. But another piece of that puzzle is training police, people who actually investigate the homicide or the first to the scene. So can you That's talk right. a little bit about when uh, Francis Glesner Lee first got involved with training police? Sure. Well, I, I started to mention that there were three things that she identified that had to be done. We, we talked about the manpower. You have to establish the program to train doctors to be medical examiners. Um, the second part of that is reforming the, the laws uh, to abolish the coroners and establish a medical examiner system. And the third piece is to train the police officers, because at the time, uh, by and large, police uh, policemen were 
um, untrained. Uh, in many places, you didn't have to have a high school diploma. Uh, some police and coroners were functionally illiterate. And, um, you know, the, the, for, you didn't have to be smart to be a, a police officer if you could coerce a confession. So they really, cops were big, strong guys, uh, not necessarily the smartest guys. Uh, and so um, it was, Lee recognized that it was important to, train police in basically forensic science, not to make them forensic scientists, but to get them to understand the importance of preserving evidence. Uh, when you're at a crime scene, you know, they, they used to do, you know, walk through blood or, you know, move the body and, and tamper with things that, uh, you know, what they do, what the police do in those first moments can affect everything else. So it was absolutely critical uh, that they understand uh, what can be learned, uh, why, uh, what evidence there may be to recognize it, to preserve it, so it could be processed and interpreted correctly. But the first step is to recognize it. So um, that's what she did. And um, she had been fostering relationships with the police departments through the um, the, the 1930s uh, and uh, in the early 1940s began formulating an idea of a, a, of a formal training program uh, and uh, at first uh, thought of maybe doing a one or two year program and, and that got nowhere. Uh, but the she and Moritz devised this uh, week-long homicide seminar, five days, all day, very intensive where police would learn about sharp force injuries and blunt force injuries and drownings and poisonings and all these things. Uh, they would also observe an autopsy and learn what the medical examiner is looking for. Uh, and that's where the nutshell studies came in uh, as they, the, the piece of that. What better way of learning how to observe a crime scene? Uh, obviously, I mean, you can't take the whole group to a real crime scene. That would be great. Uh, but that's not practical. So the next best thing is to make these little miniatures uh, that are an eternal set of facts that the group can study and uh, use for the same experience. So can you talk a little bit about what the training seminars were like? I mean, in the first place, teaching police has got to be a very different thing than teaching doctors. It is. And she learned that before you train the police, you need to train the leadership. Uh, and it wasn't enough. For one thing, she selected these homicide seminars when they began in 1945. They were by invitation only. So Francis Glesner Lee had to individually uh, choose this person. She looked for men who were early enough in their career so that they wouldn't – she didn't want people who were too close to retirement age because um, then it wouldn't get a lot of value out of the training. It had to be a young person who was interested in this. But before you train the police officer, you need to train the chief of police. So he deploys – so he understands – what this training does and what could be expected from a forensic investigation because she didn't want to provide training to somebody and then they'd be assigned to a desk. So um, uh, these people had to be used. They had a, a moral duty and responsibility to use these skills that they had been given uh, towards uh, solving suspicious and, and unexplained deaths. Uh, and so the courses – um, which were began in 1945 are actually very similar to what is done today. Uh, they're very social in, in nature. Um, the curriculum, if you looked at the program from 1945 and today, it's, it's virtually identical. Very few changes, uh, introduced some DNA and those sorts of things, but it's still blunt force injury and sharp force injury and drownings and, and shootings and an autopsy and those sorts of things. Um, and, um, during the seminar on the second evening, um, in, in Francis's mind, it was important that these people um, recognize that they are an elite uh, court. Uh, they've been tr given very special training. And so she took the entire group uh, and, and uh, hosted them a very, very fancy dinner that ended up costing her you know, $25,000, $30,000 out of her own pocket back then when $25 really, you know, uh, uh, 
counted a lot. And so, um, uh, a very fancy mule and um, uh, china that had been acquired just for the seminar at the Ritz Carlton hotels, and uh, just the centerpieces alone would cost thousands. Every little detail uh, was planned out by Francis, uh, and um, the seating arrangement and all these things. And and it was very important for her that they get a diploma that said Harvard. So um, uh, she established a um, a uh, an organization called Harvard Associates in Police Sciences, uh, HAPS. And HAPS is a membership organization that is basically continuing education. They do an advanced seminar. So uh, the purpose of HAPS and the Homicide Seminar is to get these uh, officers to network with one another, um, to associate with one another and to keep in touch and to assist one another with their work. And so she really did create the entire area uh, of, uh, what we now, you know, would think of as a homicide squad, homicide detectives. She also would bring in female police officers to these programs as well. She did. She began in, what was it, 47, 48? It didn't take long. It was only within a couple of years um, that women were a part of it. And that was uh, a real eye-opener for many police officers. It was the first time that they uh, encountered a, a, a woman police officer, and um, they had their eyes open, and they would go back to their own departments and uh, talk with the chief about uh, maybe hiring a few uh, female police officers. And um, But she did. And there were women were a part of the homicide seminar um, every year ever since. I love the strategic way that Lee went about setting up these seminars. She's so shrewd thinking about not only who's worth bringing to the seminars, but how to make sure that their skills are leveraged properly when they get back and that their skills are disseminated uh, when they get back and appreciated when they get back. And also trying to raise the profile of women just starting to get into the field of policing. I just love how shrewd and strategic Francis Glesner Lee is. She was very strategic and she was very determined you know, with, with as little that she had to work with. You've got to make sure that you're getting the most out of it. It would be an absolute waste to train a police officer who's not going to use that, those skills. So I, mean, I think that that is, it really shows a lot of insight and forethought uh, that you're going to um, make sure that you get the right people and that they're going to, you know, end up doing uh, what they're supposed to do when they, when they get through it. So it's during this period that, as you said, the nutshell studies were created. Can you give us a sense of about how long they took to build? It's not entirely clear. She did have some help. The nutshells were constructed between 1943 and 1948. And the records indicate that most of them were more or less completed by 1945. So the bulk of them were done. There were at least 10 or 12 that were completed between 43, 44, 45 when, when the, the, the first seminar began. Um, and, you know, she did do some changes to things over the years. She'd move a, a victim from one diorama to another, and they're um, sort of fluid in that way. Um, but uh, the bulk of them were done during that time period, which was during World War II. Uh, and something I didn't realize, you know, I had been looking at these things for years and years and years, and it never dawned on me that they were, uh, that they were done during wartime. And so there were material shortages for all kinds of things, uh, metals and steel and, uh, little parts, uh, plastic, all kinds of things were, uh, scarce and, and hard to come by and possible to come by. So every little thing that she used to make the dioramas was a real struggle. Not just materials, but there were other challenges that she ran into. For example, you can't just go to a shop and buy realistic-looking miniature dead people. No, as it turns out, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> and the only figures that she could find were uh, – they were sort of cartoonish, and they had a base, so they'd only – they were meant to stand upright, which was not at all – 
right for her purposes. Um, she needed uh, figures that with the you know limbs splayed or uh, limbs broken and, and and these sorts of things. So she ended up making her own, and um, um, all the uh, they were all from custom pieces. Um, she sewed all the clothing uh, individually. There, there are even detailed. There's one, for example. There's a woman, um, sadly dead, on a set of stairs, and there's a hairnet. The the little porcelain head. There's a little porcelain head with a wig on it. There are hair curlers in the wig, and then a hairnet over the hair curlers, uh, which seems to me that's just pretty impressive uh, finishing touch, which has absolutely no value as a it's not a clue at all uh but there it is uh and and those sorts of things so um i mean the layering of detail i think and and i know from reading the book and having looked at uh the book i the book i talked about before the coffee table book that the layering of detail here is so important not just as as detail for detail's sake but if everything was a clue, then it would be easy to find the clues. But part of solving a homicide or finding out and trying to figure out how and why someone died is picking apart just the pieces of their day-to-day life and the inconsequential items from the items that mean something. So a lot of that layering of detail is to create that that just base layer of life so that the clues have to be figured out from everything else that's exactly right if you know i i see these uh in classrooms they set up these crime scene rooms or crime scene corners and there's a, a few props and you know there's one bloody weapon i mean you know what you're supposed to look at uh and your eyes drawn to it pretty quickly but by filling these uh these dioramas with all sorts of extraneous uh, there's clutter, there's red herrings, um, and you absolutely, the, the details and some of the clues are so minute, uh, that you really need to concentrate and look for hours and hours. There are things that are small, literally as the point of a pen, the head of a pen that you need to notice. Uh, and so, um, it, it's overwhelming. It's just totally overwhelming that you can't, it's, there's not a one of them where you can just look at it, get a glance. Okay. Got it. Figured it out. You know, that's it. Uh, they're, they're just, you don't know. And, and they're intentionally ambiguous. They're incomplete and they're very unsettling, uh, because people naturally, they want an answer and they want to know what happened. But there's, there's not enough information contained there to know what happened. It's not about who done it. That's not to be solved. It's just about seeing what you can see and then report your observations. So, um, uh, they're just uh, like in real life. They are filled with clutter and extraneous detail, and uh, you know, just like uh, just like real life. One of the other challenges that she had that I know never occurred to me before reading the book was that pretty much. I think all of the of the dioramas, or at least most of them, present working class or lower class people. Um, if you ever go looking for pre-made miniatures that someone else has built, they typically represent a middle to upper class dollhouse life. So she really had to to build a lot of this stuff from scratch, her or the person or the people that she worked with, because a lot of even what was available in the right scale for the typical use in dollhouses was just not a appropriate for the types of scenes she was trying to build. That's right. And you mentioned uh, famous model makers. Uh, one of the others, uh, you're probably familiar with Narcissa Thorne, the mm-hmm. Thorne Rooms that are mm-hmm. in Chicago. Uh, and that's exactly what it was. Now, Narcissa Thorne and Francis Glisner Lee, where they were contemporaries and friends and neighbors uh, doing similar work in a similar time period. Uh, but the, the work is entirely different. And, and that was the problem. She couldn't acquire um, – she actually uh, uh, wrote to uh, – a, a, a furniture maker, miniature uh, maker of miniature furniture uh, for Narcissa Thorne and told him, you know, your, your, your stuff is absolutely lovely. It's exquisite. It's beautiful, but it's totally wrong for my purposes. Cause these are, you know, these are people of modest means. She's looking for things that are, that are worn or broken, uh, you know, in, in, in bad repair. Uh, and so that was very difficult. And she ended up having to make a lot of the furniture 
to her specifications because it, it just wasn't commercially available. So why did she decide to show these kinds of scenes of lower and working class rather than upper class people where she could have perhaps sourced some of the items more easily? Well, I think my theory is that um, uh, uh, homes of poor people are more interesting. Um, if you look at a diorama where everything is, is all clean and in its own place uh, and uh, in good repair, um, you don't get a lot of personality out of that. Um, I mean, you can walk into a nice house. It is sort of like, you know, it looks like a hotel lobby or, you know, hotel room. You know, one looks like another, like another, and there's, you know, clean, nothing out of place. It doesn't tell you a whole lot, mm. but there's something more. I think, um, you know, it's, it says more when you see the, the detritus of, uh, of a, a, you know, an everyday life, you know, the clutter, um, and, uh, you know, homes. Uh, the the light switches in the dioramas. The light switches have smudges. The paint's been their walls have been patched and worn spots, and and um, you know it looks the way a home looks. Can you talk a little bit about the cabin fire diorama? This was one of my favorites, and uh, as with all of them, they're based on a, a real case, so some of the details have been a bit changed. That one burned cabin. Which is based on, I was so excited because I was reading, I've always admired the burnt cabin, um, because, you know, these things did cost, she, she spent thousands of dollars on each one, uh, and it did cost approximately what it cost to, uh, build a house. And, uh, she made this one and then, um, took a blowtorch to it. Uh, you know, she literally had money to burn and I, I've talked with model makers and all sorts of people and, and, you know, it just, it just mystifies people, not just that you would, that you'd burn it, but how do you, how you burn it so carefully, so precisely, and how do you put it out without, you know, like splashing, you can't pour water on it or something like that. It would, she controlled the burn and did it so beautifully. Uh, but that one, and I'm reading, I'm reading, there are certain details, I don't want to give it away, but there are certain details about that one that made me think of, uh, the, uh, the, the, the murder of Florence Small, um, uh, committed by her husband, Frederick Small. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, there are just too many coincidences, too many similarities. And I just had, I just had this weird thought. I was so excited. I'm reading about it. And I couldn't wait to get to the office the next day to look for an alarm clock. I thought that would just nail it for me. If there's an alarm clock in this, in this, uh, um, that would just be it. So I looked and right there, right in the foreground on top of the dresser, there's the alarm clock. And I'll be, I can't believe it. It's gotta be. That's, you know, obviously, uh, an allusion to or a tribute to a nod to, um, the, the Frederick, uh, Smalls crimes. Um, and, um, that's a pretty amazing one. I'm interested to know how that one's fared over time in particular, because, uh, I'm aware from reading the book and from uh, some previous reading that they have been, uh, somewhat restored, uh, because like all things that are physical, they tend to degrade over time. Um, but I am interested to know about what perhaps interesting, I don't know if you can say, but interesting challenges they may have had attempting to restore something that's been purposefully burned up. <laughs> they, they were, they underwent conservation. Mm. Um, and conservation, when it's done well, is invisible. Uh, if it's done properly, um, you shouldn't tell that something's been conserved. That diorama, which is burned, has parts that are, they are as fragile as it looks. There are pieces of burned wood that were uh, tissue paper thin. And uh, the conservation work was done by a team uh, led by uh, Ariel O'Connor at the American Art Museum. Uh, she's a object conservator and previously worked for Air and Space Museum and did all kinds of amazing stuff. And um, that, that particular one, they did go on exhibit briefly in 2017 to the end of 2017 and beginning of 2019 at the Renwick Gallery of the Smithsonian, uh, which is about 35 miles away down the street. Uh, and that was the big concern because it was so delicate and it was literally um, pieces of, of charred 
uh, with charred wood and ash held together, uh, not by much at all. But she found a substance, and I, I, I don't know exactly what it was, but there is some sort of some substance that was that she dripped into the wood, and it had to slowly absorb. It was not a cyanoacrylate. It wasn't a resin. It didn't change the finish at all. It didn't make it shiny. It wasn't like a, a polyurethane or something like that. But it was, uh, it absorbed the wood and strengthened it, um, and so. Um, uh, it's in it's in quite good shape now, um, that diorama. And and at the same time, uh, all of the the lighting was switched up and upgraded. So uh, things that were never properly illuminated uh, are now lit, and the dioramas look as they were. They haven't looked this way since Frances Glessner Lee had her hands on them in, in the 1950s. Oh, that's so fantastic. Um, I seem to remember at the beginning of uh, our discussion here today, and I also believe in the book that uh, I read that the dioramas are still being used for their original purpose. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, they are in Baltimore for the purpose of teaching, uh, and they exist for teaching. Uh, and that's the only reason why they're at the OCME of Maryland. But um, they're still used in the homicide seminar. And they still serve a purpose that can't be done by any other means. Uh, they're still valuable for studying, and um, they're used as they were in 1945. Has there been any effort to create more of them, to kind of continue them? Because obviously these objects won't last forever. Um, all objects fade and degrade with time, even with the best conservation. So I'm curious to know if there's any interest in anybody creating new ones? Uh, n- not exactly like those. These, I, I have been assured um, that in the condition that they're in now, having undergone conservation, um, these dioramas should be good for decades. So hopefully they will exist for generations. Um, but that's not forever. Uh, there is a, a professor at University of Maryland College Park who teaches, uh, I forget if it's criminal justice, forensic science, he's done a number of, uh, I think, five or six dioramas, not quite uh, as detailed as the nutshells, and, and that, that finally finished. Uh, but he's done some dioramas uh, for teaching purposes. Uh, the most exciting thing that I'm aware of is uh, at the University of Northern Michigan, uh, there's a criminal justice program up there, there's a model maker by the name of uh, David Maastricht who has recreated, uh, he recreated the Jeffrey McDonald fatal vision murder scene. Um, that was in the, the subject of the book, Fatal Vision. Uh, and the same scale, one inch to one foot, amazingly detailed. He's a very, very gifted model maker. Uh, and the program, in addition to the diorama, they've also collected and compiled ring binders of all this ancillary material. So they have crime scene photos, uh, police reports, interview transcripts and notes and those sorts of things so that students can reinvestigate this case, uh, for, uh, anew and they can just do it from, you know, from, uh, from scratch over and over and, uh, see what they come up with, which I think is an extraordinary experience. And I, I think it's interesting that, uh, in this 21st century when we have virtual reality at our fingertips and all sorts of gee whiz, uh, technology and high resolution cameras in our pocket, uh, that there's still no substitute for looking at a, uh, a real three dimensional model, uh, and, and using that to practice. And, and it's still better than any other medium, uh, any other way of doing it. I was thinking the same thing. It's, it's, you could potentially do something like 3D with enough time and effort as the as the technology improves, but there's something about having a physical thing in front of you that I think invites you to spend almost more time looking at it that I don't know that I've ever, even when I've played with virtual reality, I don't know that I've ever spent as much time looking at something or investigating something. I mean, even yeah. just the pictures of it, I spent a lot of time looking at because I've never seen one of these things in person. But uh, I can, I remember uh, 
as a girl and as an adult looking at my grandmother's collection of handmade miniatures. And obviously they weren't scenes of death. They were, you know, a wide variety of, of miniature scenes um, and boxes, but they were so fascinating and so detailed. And I could still, if you put one in front of me, I'd probably spend an unusual amount of time just looking at it. I don't know what it is about miniatures mm. that draws people in. It's spellbinding. If you, you show something, miniature and they get quiet and they you know just sort of examine it and you're you're just sort of sucked into it you're drawn in and and your eye just gets lost in all these details um and you see it with children i mean they love detail uh but um it's just a it's mesmerizing Bruce, it's been lovely talking with you today, and it was a fabulous book. Thank you so much for writing it, and uh, I'm so happy now that I know a lot more about Francis Glesner Lee, as well as uh, a lot more about the nutshells. I've enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I hope you uh, enjoyed the book, and, and it's just been a pleasure to speak with you. If you want to learn more about Bruce Goldfarb or his book, 18 Tiny Deaths, The Untold Story of Francis Glesner Lee and the Invention of Modern Forensics, as always, we have links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 